Welcome to the bite-size edition of the Editor Roundtable podcast. Here on the Roundtable, we're dedicated to helping you become a better writer following the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne. In these episodes, we bring you some shorter solo articles and interviews on topics that interest us as writers. Hi, this is Leslie Watts, and today I'm bringing you a talk with our fellow StoryGrid certified editor, Shelley Sperry. Shelley and I co-wrote two books that were published this year through StoryGrid Publishing. One is What's the Big Idea? And the other is the StoryGrid Masterwork Guide to the Tipping Point. So today we're talking about big idea nonfiction. So join me and Shelley for a quick bite of writing insight starting right now. So Shelly, welcome. I'm so excited to talk with you today. I'm so excited to talk with you too. This is a treat for me. Awesome. So we, you know, we talk about big idea nonfiction, obviously, in the two books that we worked on together. And so maybe we could start there with what is big idea nonfiction? Why is it important? What do we you know, what do we mean by all of that? Well, um, we often like talk about um, several different types of nonfiction with big idea kind of being the uh, sort of grand combination of several different pretty commonly known types of nonfiction, which would include how-to books, which everybody kind of knows. You see those on every shelf. And um, uh, academic nonfiction, which is sort of what you, everybody has read in college, uh, sort of serious uh, pieces that are written by uh, experts for other experts. And then more narrative nonfiction, which is probably the most popular kind of nonfiction because it's very story-based. It's very much like a, a novel. Um, but then... Big idea nonfiction is great, and I think you and I both love it because it combines all of those things um, and is very exciting because it's kind of a a look into the author's mind and you kind of watch that person take a journey from what we often say is a journey from ignorance to wisdom. They're learning something important. They're exploring one particular idea and coming up with a a really interesting um, revelation at the end. So that's how I usually usually think of it and describe it. And you work with big idea nonfiction clients in your editing work? I do. Um, oftentimes people, I have to say, people often will want to write a big idea nonfiction book and sometimes they'll end up deciding, you know, this might be better as a memoir, or this might actually be better as a how-to book. Um, but then the opposite can also happen. Someone will come and decide decide that they want to do a memoir, and they suddenly discover it's actually, it has more to it, and it's actually a big idea book. So happens both ways. 
So when we, you know, obviously we did the the tipping point masterwork guide and what would you say are some of the the other big idea nonfiction books that you've really enjoyed studying, reading and and working with? Um that is a good good question. Let's see. I I kind of for a while now I've been interested in kind of um sciencey and climate changey type books and so I really one book I really liked a lot um was Elizabeth Colbert's book um The Sixth Extinction where she kind of spent has spent years, you know, reporting on climate change and kind of was looking at um uh, the grim <laughs> future, <laughs> the grim future of mm. us all, um, and uh, kind of describing it in a really um, ultimately kind of easy to understand way for the the layperson. So that was a, a favorite. One of my very very favorites, which we which I wrote about um, more in, in our books. Our, our book um, was. Um, James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time. I think if I were describing a, you know, we all have books that kind of made us think really differently about something, that would be that would be mine because I read it in college and I really came to think of kind of American history and race relations in a different way because of that book. So that was another big one for me. And how about you? So and, you know, I don't know if I would necessarily classify it completely in big idea nonfiction, because we've talked about how where you have those three components, academic, how-to, and narrative nonfiction, that sometimes a book kind of leans in one direction yeah. or another. yeah. But King Leopold's ghost was one that really, it impacted me in a, in a big way mm. because, because it was highlighting to me uh, a piece of history that I was completely unfamiliar with that is still with us today. You know, still we're feeling the reverberations of it today. Um, and also that it's kind of the first time I spotted a crime story in a big idea nonfiction book that oh. wasn't an obvious crime story, right? It wasn't like the Eric Larson books, uh -huh. which are narrative nonfiction. You know, often he has that uh, Devil in the White City. Yeah. Clearly a crime story, right? It's obvious. But King Leopold's Ghost was one of those stories that had, yes, it had a huge impact on me. It was really engaging and well-written, you know, like it read, it reads like a thriller. Yeah, yeah, and that's a big secret to it, isn't it? And that's the hardest thing often for big idea nonfiction, right? You can have, say, an academic book that has a fantastic idea and just brilliant new way of thinking, but you have to also, if you're gonna, if you're gonna be able to publish a an actual big idea book. It has to have that wonderful, um, captivating writing and captivating story to it. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's what makes, makes the difficult to write, but also the books you remember the most. Um, 
Right. So, yeah, they really, they pull you in like any other, you know, like fiction does. And as a result, it feels like the ideas and the, you know, the information, the evidence is more like it sticks with you. Yeah. Yes, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Cause we, that's what we remember. We remember the story that's attached to the idea. Um, and it just it embeds itself <laughs> in our brains. Yeah. Right. Which is that, that thing that Sean talks about the, the cocktail party fodder, uh-huh. or I suppose water cooler, or maybe Zoom call fodder. Yes, right. Now it's the, the Zoom happy hour. What are we going to talk about during our Zoom happy hour today? Oh, well, right. Oh, I was reading this book and there are these, <laughs> you know, all these little tidbits, these little mm-hmm. stories mm-hmm. that are interesting and surprising. And, you know, that's one of the things that I love too, I think, is that you, with Big Idea Nonfiction, you get the you get the goods up front, mm-hmm. right? This is the big idea. And this is, you know, this is, you basically spell it out. You spend a big chunk of the middle build really analyzing that. And, um, or I suppose we, we would say formalizing that and taking it apart and looking at the pieces, mm-hmm. but it's the twist or the deeper insight that comes at the end that makes it worth it. Besides the story, that makes it worth it to go through the entire book. Right. Yeah, you can. And you can, I mean, that's a nice thing about big idea books. You can read them on a, uh, I'm not going to say superficial, but you can read them on a quick, tell me the idea uh, uh, level. But mm-hmm. what you really, when you really get something out of them, you read you read them on multiple levels. You know, you do go through, and watch the transformation of that idea, watch it emerge, and then you you wait for the kind of obligatory, really cool twist at the end. But then you love it because there are multiple fantastic stories and characters in it. Um, and that's where somebody like, you know, Malcolm Gladwell is the master of that. And also somebody like Michael Pollan, you just, you know, they're going to be great little stories and characters you're going to remember in every book. So you do want to read the whole thing. What would you say about point of view mm. in, in these stories? Because it's really the, it seems to me, the perspective from which the author is presenting mm-hmm. The information and stories is, you know, it's always important, any book, but is particularly important for big idea nonfiction. It's really, yeah, it really is important. And it's sometimes you have to, if you're trying to write something like that, I think you have to remind yourself, I don't have to present myself as the perfect expert. That actually is not the best voice or point of view. The best is the best option is to present yourself like a Malcolm Gladwell. Like I'm a seeker. I'm a seeker of knowledge. I am looking, um, I'm exploring and I'm experimenting with different ideas. And that's what really is the captivating. Um, I think anyway, captivating kind of voice author's voice. 
Yeah, because I think, isn't it that part of it is that we're we're learning to think in a new way. So mm-hmm. we're essentially, like Sean has been talking about lately, we're breaking our cognitive frame, mm-hmm. coming to think about, for example, in the tipping point, drastic, rapid change in a new way, mm-hmm. which seems old hat now, 20 years on, but it was pretty revolutionary at the time. <laughs> yeah, it was a really a different yeah, a different framework is a really good way. A different frame, cognitive frame, is a really good, good term and way of thinking about it. I think. So when we're thinking about, like, if we want to write about nonfiction, and we're not exactly sure what kind of, you know, what 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 kind of animal in mm-hmm. our little taxonomy are we dealing with? How would you approach that? Well, there are several different ways. Um, but one thing I've been doing lately is telling people, think a lot about your audience. Um, that's a really, that's a key pointer um, if you're trying to figure out. So you've got this idea, you've got this this thing you want to write about. Is it, I mean, the academic is the easiest because you know if you're an academic or not. <laughs> you know if you're writing for other super experts in your field and you're going to use that language and you're going to use the modes of proof and modes of presentation that, you know, academics, that chemists or historians or, or other academics use. That's easy. But then sometimes it is hard to figure out, am I writing a how-to or a big idea book? And that's very much, I think, about, um, a lot about audience because a how-to book, you want to be the expert and you want to talk to people who are non-experts and you want to teach them to do or become or um, handle something that you know a lot about. Um mm-hmm. You're not taking them on your journey. They don't care about your journey, <laughs> you're not, right? They, the, you're you are just you're a teacher, um, right? Of non-experts. Um, so, oftentimes that's a an easy way to to look at it. The and then the same thing with big idea books. You are talking to non-experts, but they're people who want to know how you got there, how you formed your ideas they want to go on a a journey with you um i don't know if that makes sense then of course you know a narrative they want to hear they just want to hear the story they want to hear the cool characters and they want to it they want to um that audience is is really concerned with less the idea and more the story. Right. So I always think of Seabiscuit. Uh-huh, that's good. Yes, that's such that's a good example. That's one of example. my favorite yeah. of all time. Yeah. There's also uh there's a wonderful narrative nonfiction piece by William Zinser, Mitchell and Ruff about the musicians. I know a lot of people who want to write how to but they want to weave stories into maybe they don't mm-hmm. want to 
write a big, they're not ready to commit to a big idea nonfiction book, perhaps, right? Because maybe the research, oh, right. the academic mm-hmm. element feels yep. a little daunting. Yep. Yep. So what would you say about somebody who wants to do some how-to, because they are an expert and they've mm-hmm. gained some knowledge they want to share, but they want to, you know, weave in some stories? I think that's complete, that makes your how-to so much better, <laughs> right? It yeah. makes it something that people really want to read. Um, so you, you, in effect, you use your stories as your illustrations so that people will be able to follow the steps that you're teaching them, right? You're teaching them Mm -hmm. something. So you want them to be able to remember and follow those steps. And so you use really interesting little illustrations from your life. I think that that's completely legitimate and kind of the best way to do a how-to. I'm always also thinking about fiction writers um, because because that's, you know, that's most of what we do on the round table. And so in terms of what would you say that fiction writers can take away from big idea nonfiction? When I think about big idea books, I think in terms of a quest, right, for knowledge. And I think honestly, that many, many fiction books and of all types are also a quest for some sort of knowledge. I think that's certainly where Sean is going these days in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, everything that we write is some form of a, a search for greater knowledge and greater insight. And so the way that if you have a, you know, if a fiction writer has a, a nonfiction big idea book that they particularly like, it's really worth looking at how that structure works, how that quest to how that search for an answer to a question is set up. And it's set up, you know, a little bit differently in each book and each author emphasizes characters or um, different kinds of um, uh, research in different ways. But I think, you know, you can take it, it Anything that we read, we can take um, insights and ideas from. So I think, you know, people like Michael Pollan, well, you know, my favorite, James Baldwin, is a Mm -hmm. fiction writer, primarily. But when he writes nonfiction, he does it beautifully. And he's able to go back and forth in terms of, you know, creating really memorable characters and he can do it in both. He can do it in, in, as a nonfiction writer and as a fiction writer. So I think you can always look and find um, ideas and inspiration um, from any piece of writing that you do. Um, just like one other, don't want to be too long-winded here, but one other thing that popped into my mind are people who write memoir and then who also write big idea books. So like... Um, Hope Yaren is somebody who's had a popular, uh, she's a scientist who's written this memoir of her life as a, as a female scientist called Lab Girl. And it was very popular and it was really interesting and it was really focused on her, this world of science um, that, um, you know, uh, kind of 
helped her develop herself as a person and helped her uh, connect with other people. And then after she'd written the memoir, she now has a big idea book out, which I think probably takes a lot of lessons that she learned writing narratively, you know, about characters and about um, kind of constructing a story. She kind of takes what she learned there and is able to put that into her big idea book, um, which is sort of her version of, um, you know, why we need to care about (laughs) climate change topic again, Mm -hmm. same topic again, but sort of, you know, I think she probably learned a lot from writing narrative that she can then apply um, to her, her nonfiction. Right, right. That's a great example. So one thing too, that we have we have in common um is that we both worked on these these books and we've worked on some other projects together too and i think that um it might be useful for us to talk a little bit about the process of working together you know two writers and editors working on books together and how that um, how that process was like, I know how it was for me. It was magnificent. Um, same, like, same for me. Yeah. I think we're in total agreement there. And which I don't think we knew when we started that right. it was going to, you know, do you have any insights or, or tips if somebody is, you know, wants to work with another writer to produce a book, whether it's fiction, nonfiction, Mm -hmm. whatever. Do you have any uh, insights from, from our work together? I know I'm putting you on the spot. (laughs) No, not at all. No, I could talk about that all day because it's been one of the best things of the last year for me is to learn about collaboration because I think probably both of us, um, maybe me even more so because I just, I really do work primarily by myself um you know we're writers tend to be introverts editors tend to be introverts and so um it can be scary I think probably for writers listening out there you know you can think oh no I have to talk to someone else and will we agree and you know it's uh it can it can feel like a, a somewhat scary prospect to work in collaboration with someone and to kind of be dependent on them. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think what I found through the magic of zoom and (laughs) which we're all dependent on right now, uh, you know, the more you talk things through the, it's just so much easier to um, sort of spark each other to new insights. I can't remember, I can't count the number of times we got on a call. I often would say, oh, I don't have any good ideas here. I don't know what to do, or I'm, you know, I've got a problem. I'm confused about X, Y, or Z. By the end of the call, you've talked it through with someone else and together you've come up with the solution and it's a solution that you might have gotten to on your own, but it might've taken three times as long, but that, that talking through of questions and kind of 
particularly when you see that the other person has the same question you have, that's really reassuring. And then you can work on it together. Um, it's just a great process. And then discovering, I think, which we did after a little while, what your strengths are versus what my strengths are. And then we adjusted. It sort of a, was a very a constant I think the other uh, the tip that I would have if I'm giving people tips is recognize that it'll be a constant matter of adjusting your work process because you'll gradually figure out, oh, this person likes to do this more and I like to do this more. And so we'll just make a little adjustment in how we proceed. Um, does that my. Yeah. 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 And that as well. That kind of constant little bits of adjustment. Yeah, which is, you know, in any partnership, that's what you're going to have to do, Mm -hmm. right? You know, whether it's romantic or professional, you know, that you have to, um, you know, yeah, you have to make adjustments as you go because uh, no battle plan survives first contact with the enemy. Um, And the enemy being in a way, not the work necessarily, but all the unexpected things that pop up while you're trying to do the work, you know? Um, And to highlight a couple of things that you mentioned to me, the, it was both the validation of, yes, this is a sticky problem or yes, this is interesting. You know, that, that kind of validation of um, perception was really useful. And then then also the, the places where we saw things differently and either, you know, like like having different strengths, of course, um, but also, oh, I didn't notice that thing, right? Especially when we were doing the masterwork guide, the tipping point, I feel like, you know, there were so many things that you noticed that I didn't pick up on. And that was really, that was wonderful. But then also, of course, there were the days when I'm like, Oh, I'm I'm not gonna make it. And you were like, "Come on, Leslie, we can do, it. We can do this." <laughs> it's the cheerleader factor, right? We each had to pull out the pom poms occasionally and say, "Okay, let's keep going. We can do it. Go fight, win." <laughs> yeah, and and so I think the rewards of you know working with you has made, you know, the, the work is greater than our, the sum of our individual efforts. Um, Definitely. Yeah. I don't think we've both said more than once. There is no way I a hundred percent. No, there's no way I could have written either of those books by myself. Like, right. It just sort of, it was just, yeah, there's so much better because we had two brains <laughs> working on them, which created a third, even better brain in the yeah. end. Yeah. Right, right. Right. Which is the whole idea behind uh, mastermind groups. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So to kind of wrap things up, what would you say if, if someone has an 
has an idea and they think it's a big idea, you know, they're kind of, they're excited about it and they, they think they're in that category. What are the first steps that they should take on that journey toward, you know, from, oh, Eureka to, oh, wow, I have this book and <laughs> it's been published. And, and now I'm on the talk show circuit with my, my, my new book. Um, yes. Well, you know, it's diff, you know, people are each writer's different. And I always want to acknowledge that, you know, mm-hmm. we talk about that with fiction authors too. You, each writer has a different process in terms of, of kind of starting off and getting through the, the first draft of a book. But I think for for me, for big idea nonfiction, because it's very difficult, I, I do want to say it's really a difficult type of book to write. It's not because it's can be quite complex. Um, I tend to say that people should practice in small bits. And that's kind of either an academic or a Malcolm Gladwell newspaper magazine person model. You know, you have this idea, you need to play with it a little bit, right? You know, if you're inclined to write blog posts, write a couple blog posts about it. If you have the ability to maybe write an article for a newspaper or a magazine, do that, you know, play with it in small bits first, Mm -hmm. and that will help you develop it um, and help you kind of it will push you to do a little research because you, if you're going to write an article, you need to do a little bit of research and it will allow you to explore it on a small scale and find out if you're still really excited and interested. And if you think you can then go ahead and leap into the, <laughs> into the ocean of <laughs> writing the full <laughs> book. Um, so I, what do you usually tell people? Leslie, when they kind of come and say, okay, here's this fantastic idea. Let's go. Yeah. I think along those lines of, right, you do need to try it out Mm -hmm. and you do need to hang out with it. Mm -hmm. Right. Cause you're going to be right. Just doing a masterwork guide, right. We hung out with the tipping point for many, many months. Yes read the scenes multiple times Mm -hmm. and then had to read, of course, our work multiple times. You have to kind of be in love and a little bit crazy and Mm -hmm. a little bit irrational even about what you're studying Um, because we haven't really gone there um, in this discussion yet, but but we're both pretty enthusiastic about Malcolm Gladwell while also seeing that, you know, it's not perfect. No. Right. That's it. You know, of course. But he's pretty, he's pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs) He's got a very cool mind, doesn't he? Yeah. He's, yeah. That curiosity, you can see it on every page and you can see um, the way he twists and turns and, uh, flows from one idea to another in surprising ways. Yeah, he's pretty darn cool. 
Right. So I would say like that the preparation or the the mindset you need to go into it with is that exactly that curiosity. Mm-hmm. And then coupled with a healthy dose of humility and the willingness to be imperfect. That's key. That's a really good, um, yeah, final <laughs> point, right? So you want to, you're going to want to be perfect. You're going to want to, if you love your idea, you're going to dig and dig and it's a long distance run. Oh, which Gladwell is also a runner, isn't he? I didn't think of that. Um, but, um, but yeah, but you're never, you're not going to be perfect and you have to be comfortable with saying, yep. I may make some mistakes here. I, and even after it's published, you're going to have to say, oh, I think I changed my mind. But that's part of your curiosity, isn't it? Um, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Ah, oh, wonderful. Thank you so much, Shelley. Uh, I've really enjoyed, um, I, of course, enjoy working with you. And I enjoy just kind of talking about this with you in this context. So thank you. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, it couldn't be um, a more uh, fun conversation. Yeah, And I'll talk to you soon about another book, probably. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So So that wraps it up for this week. To support the Roundtable podcast, you can leave us a rating and review on the podcast distributor of your choice and tell your writer friends about us. Join us next week for another bite-sized episode in which we'll all deepen our knowledge of story and level up our craft. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.